Hi and welcome to the Demand Matrix podcast series Sunny Side Up. I'm Paroma. I'll be your host for the day. Hey Christopher, how are you today? And first off, welcome to the Sunny Side Up podcast hosted by Demand Matrix. We are so happy to have you here today and uh, it would be great if you can tell us how you've been, how your morning has started and tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. Day is great so far. Obviously, this with an international audience, day and night are relative terms. In terms of who I am and what I do, I am the co-founder and chief data scientist of TrustInsights.ai. We are a data science consulting firm for marketers to help marketers basically make more of the data they already have, help you make more money with your data, help you prove more impact with your data, help you keep your job, uh, any of those things that you would want to do with your data, especially if you don't have access to the talent or you don't have the time to do all these things. That's what we do. So what's a typical day at work like for you? Here's the thing. There isn't a typical day in the sense of data science, the way we do it and the way it is, if you do it in general, is a lot like detective work. One of our services we call is data detectives. And you don't know what the next case is going to be. Just like a police detective has no idea what the next case is going to be. There are broad categories of solving an ROI problem, solving an attribution analysis problem. Is there a data cleanliness problem? What is it going to be? You don't know. And so as a data detective, you have to be open-minded to what could happen. Now, the average day for me is get started first thing in the morning, do my personal blog. I do a 10-minute video every day, no more than 10 minutes because LinkedIn doesn't let you upload more than 10 minutes worth. And I use a variety of tools to create that, get it transcribed using AI software, convert it to an MP3 for a podcast, publish it on my blog with a transcript. And so that all takes about the first 45 minutes of the day. After that, it's into whatever the clients and and the business need and wrap up around 4 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, mm-hmm. spend a few hours with my family. And then in the evening, spend a couple hours doing research, pure research. Like this weekend, I'm going to be doing some analysis of job search requests combined mm-hmm. with unemployment data from the government to see if there's a relationship between the two. So that's sort of like what happens on average. And you mentioned your blog and, you know, we have to mention, you know, we really appreciate and like the way that you've come up with the entire Christopher S. Penn blog, you know, because of the entire interactive format, the short videos and your entire model is pretty interesting because you're one of the few people who's basically answering people's questions. You're not creating things without knowing what they want to hear. And I like the whole model. So, yeah, great going. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, we're going to also use a lot of reference material from your blog. So, yeah, keep it updated. (laughs) Yeah. So let's move on to the next question. You've often spoken about poor data management and how using CDPs are not ideally the best solution in this case because it doesn't really fix the core problem. So can you talk about some of the most common data mismanagement errors you'd like to have every company phase out eventually? Yeah. Oh, there's so many. If you're not familiar with a CDP, a customer data platform, these are relatively new services, most of them SaaS-based software that are supposed to help marketers connect to all their different data silos and turn that into a single record of the customer, which is an admirable aim to go for. But to me, it seems like it is putting a Band-Aid on a much more serious problem. The serious problem is if you don't know where your data is or what condition it's in or you have all these problems with your data, adding more services and more tools on top of that is not going to fix the underlying problem. You have fundamentally a data governance problem. You have mm-hmm. you fundamentally have a problem with not knowing where your data is or not knowing what its quality is. And so 
the framework that we use that we advise people to use is I call it the six C framework because I have something of a love of making acronyms for no good reason. Uh, <laughs> the six C's are I'll send a link to you, Parma, that you can include in the blog because there's actually a one-page PDF, no form to fill out, that you can download um, that has this. But number one, your data has to be clean. If you don't have clean data that's free of errors, very little else matters because it's just not mm-hmm. going to work for you. Number mm-hmm. two, your data has to be complete, no missing information. Marketers in particular have this problem a lot because in many cases, they don't talk to IT a whole lot. And so things can happen like a website change and then your Google Analytics data is missing for a day or a week or forever, <laughs> which happens a lot more than you would think. Number three, your data has to be comprehensive. It has to cover the questions being asked. Again, mm-hmm. this is one where marketers have a tremendous amount of trouble because they'll talk about things like ROI, but if you don't have the return, meaning the money that you earn, you don't have the investment, which is the money you spent and it's comprehensive, things like time is money, utilities, all those things, then you can't do ROI. So comprehensive is number three. Number four is, is your data chosen well or do you have a bunch of irrelevant data? People who have done Facebook marketing know this super well because you get that lovely report from your Facebook page. It's 14 tabs of a spreadsheet. Like, come on, we don't need all that data. Mm-hmm. Number five, it has to be credible. This is, again, where marketers run into a lot of trouble, especially in B2B, is that the data is not collected in a credible, unbiased way. I can't tell you the number of B2B marketing publications I've read which say, like, you know, we surveyed 400 marketers from our mailing list, and, you know, and this is what marketers think. Well, no, that's what your audience thinks. That's not what marketers in general marketers think, because think. your mailing mm-hmm. list is not representative. Exactly. And finally, the last thing is, is your data calculable? Is it a format that people can use and that machines can use? And very often, it's usually one or the other. So I would like to see companies fix all six of these in in order to get to good data quality. Mm-hmm. This is very interesting. The six C's by CP. I like how that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So while adopting CRMs, CDPs, and other tools, what should small to mid-sized marketing and sales teams keep in mind? Because very often what happens is you have, especially now you have a lot of millennials or the younger lodge and the next generation, they're comfortable with tools. They can maneuver, you know, the entire MarTech and sales tech system. But again, the fundamental problem remains data. The data is not clean. It's not validated or it's not updated. So what would you tell to these small to mid-sized marketing and sales teams? What should they keep in mind when they're adopting new technologies today? This is a really good question because it shows that people are thinking too compartmentalized. Think about you have data, you have software and tools. The analogy to that would be like you have ingredients and you have frying pans and spatulas. And people are like, well, how can I optimize my spatula usage? No, your goal is to cook dinner or breakfast or lunch. Your goal is not to optimize your use of a spatula. Your goal is Mm -hmm. to make dinner in a timely manner. So uh, the number one question that you would encounter in the kitchen is, hey, what are we cooking? There's a huge difference between making something like a scrambled egg omelet, right? That's one dish you could make that uses a spatula in a pan in a certain way. And there's another thing for making chicken teriyaki, right? They're totally different applications. Mm -hmm. What's the plan? What's the strategy? What's the goal you're trying to achieve? And then what tools do you have that can help you achieve that goal? Do you know how to use them? And then what ingredients do you have? Because if all you've got is mac and cheese, guess what? You're having mac and cheese. It doesn't matter what meal it is. You're having mac and cheese. Mm -hmm. So that's the problem with all these tools. CRMs, CDPs, DSPs, DMPs, you name it. They're just tools like frying pans and spatulas. What are you cooking? 
Do you have the tools? Yes, it's important. Do you have the ingredients? Do you know how to make it? Do you have the recipe? Do you have a plan? Do you have a timeline? Do you have a budget? Um, so basically, do you know where you want to go using those tools and technologies? That's exactly that's the idea, yeah. as opposed mm-hmm. to marketing technology being, let's just have technology for technology's sake. Bad idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So then can you talk about some of your observations in B2B marketing when it comes to data? What data sets or what metrics and intelligence in terms of insights and intelligence that teams extract from the data? What is growing in demand in this segment? Well, here's the thing. Except for the most progressive companies, most B2B marketers are still doing the same thing they've been doing for the last 10 years. And that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily a bad thing because... Mm -hmm. Until you are really good at the basics, you shouldn't try to do more advanced things, right? Like if you can't make toast, you should not be attempting to make French toast, right? You should just master toast. I use a lot of cooking analogies. And we thought it was because we call the podcast Sunny Side Up. But yeah, thanks for clearing (laughs) that out. (laughs) I mean, it's accurate. When you talk about B2B data, things like, you know, do you know who your customer is? Do you have relevant information on that customer? Do you have access to your web analytics, your marketing automation data, your CRM data, your customer care data, like going down the operations funnel? You still need to, to use all that stuff. Now, what's changing slowly is that companies are starting to get better about using software, particularly data science and machine learning, to draw out better insights from that data because there are mathematical relationships in almost every data set that are invisible to the naked eye. Our human brains are simply not equipped to deal with that, particularly when you're talking about really big data sets or high dimensionality data sets where you have like dozens or hundreds of columns in a spreadsheet, for example. Mm -hmm. What are the relationships that lead to the outcome that you care about? And so that's where I see a lot more value happening. Some people are starting to get much more clever about what third-party data that's available, that's credible, can we bring in? Can we bring in government data? Can we bring in Google search data or SEO data or social media data to augment and inform the forecasting we're already doing? So then in this entire exercise, are you seeing a lot of demand? What kind of demand are you seeing specifically for intent data sets? Have you noticed any growing demand for you know specific knowledge or intelligence from technographics or you know the consumption, the technology buying behaviors of audiences when it comes to intent data? What are you observing here? So intent and technographics are totally different things. Technographics are super valuable because they basically tell you how much money a company has got, right? A company that's using Zoho CRM is going to have a lot less money in general than a company that's using Salesforce.com, right? Because Salesforce.com is egregiously expensive uh, once you get past like two users. So if you know that a company is using Salesforce Marketing Cloud or is using Zoho or Infusionsoft, you have a good sense of that their technology decision-making process and what budget they have available. None of that suggests intent. Intent data comes from really four buckets, right? There's search data. What, what do people search for? There is particularly branded and unbranded search. What social media or, or publicly available conversational data is available. From an intent perspective, there is survey data, which is so important that people just don't do enough of it and they don't do it well. And finally, mm-hmm. the one that is just mind-blowingly crazy to me is people don't ask on input forms two questions. How did you hear about us? And Mm -hmm. what made you reach out today, right? Those two questions will answer like 95% of intent that you want to know that if you could just ask people that those questions when they come in the door, your marketing would be so much better and nobody does it. Absolutely. So thank you for this very interesting insight, you know, Christopher, because we were about to run a survey, you know, in the next couple of weeks. And uh, now that you've just mentioned this, we know exactly what to include. (laughs) So thank you. (laughs) Yep. 
you know, moving on, the entire data-driven marketing trend has uh, picked up pace over the last couple of years. And I think one of the driving forces has been this demand for personalization. People want to feel that you have sent them something that is especially for them. So it's this drive for personalization that's, you know, created this interest in data to understand the customer behavior and the customer buying patterns better. So how would you advise people to achieve personalization at scale without removing the human connected element from their messaging in this entire exercise? So I'm going to say something really funny. Personalization is mostly irrelevant. And here's why. Most companies do it really poorly. Mm -hmm. And the company itself, no matter how personalized and targeted and finely detailed it gets, it doesn't change the fact that if your product sucks, no one's going to buy it from you, no matter how personalized it is. Forget about personalization for a moment and say, do you have anything of value to the person that you were talking to? No matter how in-depth or psychographic, technographic, demographic, whatever the data is, if you're still selling a product that nobody wants or you're selling a product that your competitor has for half the cost and double the quality, you're going to lose. So first, get the basics down. Do you have a product worth buying? If you mm -hmm. don't, your marketing is going to fail, period, end of story. Second, if you're not thinking of your marketing as a product in to itself, you're missing the boat. By that, I mean... Is your marketing itself valuable enough that somebody would want it? This is a serious question. If you could get away with charging for your marketing, could you do that and have anyone buy it? If you've sold books, for example, guess what? That's people buying your marketing because your ebook is a form of marketing. So give that some thought. Now, if you have a great product and you have great marketing, then you can start doing personalization. And the most important thing with personalization is doing very deep upfront exploratory data analysis. It's a data science term. And it means look at all the data that you have, look at the outcomes that you care about, labeled data, like, yes, this is a highly qualified customer, or no, this is not a high qualified potential customer. And then use machine learning, use data science to analyze all the personalization data you could be using and say, what is the likelihood that this has a mathematical relationship to the outcome we care about? And you can you already have that data. You have it in your CRM. You have it in your marketing automation software. You have your data providers, but no one's doing it. So you end up with either lame personalization like Dear Paroma Sen with you know everything misspelled or they mix up the name. And then it's a bunch of useless stuff that is in the messaging that nobody cares about. So that's personalization. Great product, great marketing. Then you can personalize. Yeah, so these steps make a lot more sense. But then again, most of the time, because of the lack of an internal team's expertise to break down and draw relevant insights from their data, the entire purpose gets lost in all of this. So what would you share in terms of some top methods for B2B tech companies to optimize the application of data and technologies to produce best results? Because most of the time, you won't have data scientists sitting in or working within the marketing team or the sales team. So how can they use technology to break down these insights themselves? Well, so there's two ways you can do this. You kind of have to do both. Number one, if you don't have data science resources internally in your organization, now would be the time to get some. Whether you hire an agency like Trust Insights or you hire in-house staff, mm -hmm. you're going to need that expertise because the world is moving rapidly towards a world where marketing will be powered by machine learning. And if you don't have that capability, you're in a lot of trouble. So that's number one. Number two, and this is something that, again, so many marketers don't do. When was the last time that you, as a marketer, got up from behind your desk and sat face-to-face -face across from another customer and talked to them? Like, hey, what's happening in your world? What are your pain points? What sucks at work? What are the things you wish you could do better? If you don't do that, if you're not 
talking to real people, you will never get the insights of why people make the choices you make. So data and analytics and stuff is super, super good at understanding what happened, right? With great data scientists, you can distill down what happened to incredible detail. But at no point are you going to be able to read someone's mind and understand why did they make the choice? Why did they abandon their cart? Why aren't they opening their, your emails? Why mm -hmm. does your checkout process broken? Why did that sale never go anywhere? Until you talk to somebody, you can't ask them and you won't know that. And this is going to sound weird coming from a technologist. But the more human you can make that interaction, meaning the closer you can get to sitting down across from another human being with a cup of the beverage of your choice and asking them these questions in person the better your information will get. You need to have that ability to drill down, to create your own informal focus groups or one-on-ones just to ask people, why are you making the choices you make? That's mm -hmm. something that I would love to see more B2B, B2C, B2Anything companies do is just talk to people. Yeah, and they're losing out because now we have so many tools and technologies to reach out to anyone anywhere in the world. I don't remember the last time I had a face-to-face -face meeting with anyone. So yeah, this is very relevant. I think it should come back. Face-to-face -face meetings, the human connect, just pick up the phone, ask people how they are, your prospects also, why not? Interesting. But anyway, so no B2B conversation is complete without mentioning account-based marketing. ABM is big in B2B and tech today. So can you tell us your thoughts on ABM? How do you see this whole model move? And what tools, data, and technology will drive <coughs> ABM efforts in the coming months? ABM is a time-limited concept. It came into existence because we realized as an industry that, you know, just sending the same message to everyone, not the most effective way to go. I say it's time-limited because at some point, relatively soon it will be irrelevant and here's why as we do get better with machine learning technologies as we do get better at things like natural language recognition and natural language generation speech recognition video recognition creating content these technologies will let us scale real one-to-one -one interactions real one-to-one -one content creation with companies so forget about an account right? There is a person at that company that you can create custom materials for that is exactly what they want. We see glimmers of this today with things like chatbots, where a chatbot can interact in a one-on-one -on -one basis with somebody. That's mm -hmm. baby steps compared to, hey, when you send out your next email marketing campaign, say two to five years down the road, every person on your list is going to get a different email, not by account, not by company, but by that person about what they, it is that they asked for that your software can deliver to them. So ABM is an intermediary step. It's important today because it's better than blanket, you know, sending everyone the same garbage, but it's not the future. The future is true one-to-one -one with the individual at the account. That's very interesting, Christopher. I think that you're the first person to say something like this on the Sunny Side of podcast. This is very interesting. We're going to quote you on this. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, data science is obviously a growing trend and data scientists are in demand all over the world today. Can you share your thoughts on the must-have skills and your thoughts on the evolving role of a typical data scientist and analyst, given the dynamics in the industry today? Data science is a relatively new term. It is a combination of technology skills, is a combination of statistical and mathematical skills, and business skills. All three of those things will continue to grow. A lot of the basic tasks you're going to see, and you are already seeing massive leaps forward with automation. So for example, IBM, full disclosure, my company is an IBM registered business partner. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you happen to buy anything from us, we get a small amount of compensation now that the FTC disclosures are out of the way. IBM released this thing called Auto AI that you give it a data set and it will attempt to build a model for you. 
And mm-hmm. so the laborious task of doing hyperparameter optimization and feature extraction, the software can do some of that now. But that triumvirate of real coding skills, real statistics and mathematical skills, and real business skills, you can't put that into a machine just yet. And you probably won't for a while because there is multiple domain expertise. It's very, very hard to, to get machines to do. That's what you need in a true data scientist. You need someone who can do all three things or at least has enough knowledge that they could manage specialists in each of those areas and coordinate them. Where a lot of companies are running into trouble is twofold. One, data scientists, real data scientists are very, very expensive. In Silicon Valley, you would be lucky to find any data scientist with four years of of credible experience and the right background for less than $350,000 a year. I think it was was either an IBM or McKinsey stat, one of the two that said there are like 8,500 credible qualified data scientists with five years of experience or more in the US. There are 14,500 marine biologists. So more people know about whales than there are data scientists. So that's one aspect. The second is data science itself is a subset of what's happening now with artificial intelligence and machine learning. Data scientists are the architects of the systems that you will deploy in a lot of cases. And so you desperately will need them to help guide your AI efforts and to deploy them in ways that get the results you want and also don't get you in a ton of trouble. One of the biggest areas where you need real serious data scientists working is to look for and mitigate bias. This is a massive, massive problem in the industry right now, in all industries that are using any kind of machine learning. And it's almost getting worse rather than better because you now have a lot of folks who are like, did the crash course in data science you know, certificate from wherever. They did six weeks of an intensive course. They think they're data scientists. They're going out rushing to deploy new models and no one is testing for bias. Amazon got in a tremendous amount of trouble last year. They built this AI hiring system that would screen out LinkedIn profiles and resumes and recommend top candidates. It only hired men because (laughs) their training data was so skewed and nobody thought to ask the question, hey, what demographic or psychographic profile should we be using to enforce fairness, to adhere to the laws that dictate hiring? That never crossed anybody's mind until they deployed the system like, oh, (laughs) that's not working, right? (laughs) The ability to think about your data, to be able to analyze it, to understand it deeply, and to know what can go wrong and mitigate it against our essential data science skills, and there's simply not enough of them. So obviously, thanks to all the influx of AI-powered tools, machine learning, auto ML, you know, these are the examples you took as to why and how the role of a typical data scientist would evolve with time. So these new technologies will also shape the role of a marketer and a salesperson in a very different way in the coming months, because, you know, with, with all the predictions, all the intent buying signals that a typical marketer or a salesperson is exposed to today, I think half their job is already done. It's not like 10 years ago. So how do you see the shape? How do you see a typical CMO or a CSO look in the next five years? What would their core skill requirement be? Gosh, if I knew that, I'd be retired already because I've made a billion dollars. <laughs> Here's the thing. AI and machine learning technologies are really, really good at dealing with repetitive tasks, whether simple or complex. And as AI gets more sophisticated, the complexity of repetitive tasks can handle gets better and better and better. We went from very basic time series forecasting predictions five years ago to today using deep neural networks to do a very advanced forecast, but we're still doing functionally handling a repetitive task. So Look at your calendar, say, a month from today. Like, what's on your calendar a month from today? If you know, without a doubt, what's going to happen in general 
a month from today, you know that you're going to get up, you're going to have this meeting, you have this thing, you're going to do this thing, your job's in danger. Because it is clearly repetitive enough that you can forecast out that far ahead and know what's going to happen. On the other hand, if you have no idea what's going to happen Monday and you're juggling, you just know it's going to be a bunch of juggling chainsaws but, and they're all on fire, but you have no idea what exactly is going to happen. That's a good indicator that your job has enough random complexity that it's relatively safe compared to somebody who is just going to be doing the same repetitive work over and over again. I used to work at a PR firm. And there was mm -hmm. one role at this firm. The person's job was copying and pasting stuff eight hours a day. Like that job's going away because that person offers very little value other than pushing keys in a certain sequence. So that's a, one major consideration. The second thing is that AI and machine learning technologies are bad at four things. Number one, they're bad at empathy. They can understand and analyze things like sentiment and tone and things in language. But empathy is about understanding what someone else is going through and then acting on it. And machines can't do that. It's, it'll be some time before they can. Mm -hmm. The second thing they're bad at is that machines are bad at judgment. And by judgment, I mean making decisions that go against standard rules. For example, if you are at a store and you're buying something, and you offer the money and, and you're like, you're four cents short. A human clerk, like, ah, don't worry about it. You know, it's four cents because it's fine. A machine would not know. It's okay to let that rule go. The machine would be like, uh, where's the extra four cents, right? And we encounter aspects of judgment all the time in daily life that machines don't have the rule making capabilities to understand right now. Mm -hmm. The third is machines are bad at multi-domain expertise. We talked about this a little bit earlier. They can't take an idea from one domain and an idea from a second domain that's very different and interpolate them together. They can take an idea from one domain and transfer it to another domain. There's a whole machine learning area called transfer learning that is about that, but they can't pivot the idea or blend it into a new idea. And the last thing, for the most part, machines are not as good at human-to-human -human relationship. We, as human beings, still, for the most part, prefer human-to-human -human relationships. The exception is if the customer experience is so awful that a machine is better. So like in the United States, we have this government agency called the Department of Motor Vehicles. And apologies to anybody from any DMV that's listening, but in general, <laughs> it's a miserable experience, right? In general, you'd yeah. rather deal with a machine, just get it done quickly, than wait in this gray, drab government office. Right. And so- those are the things that machines will not be able to do in that if you are a human marketer, a human CMO, a human marketing manager, whatever, those are the things to double down on while you look for ways to automate tasks away from people. There's a very insightful quote from a paper recently. I want to say it was from the Brookings Institute. It said, machines take tasks, not jobs. They will take tasks away. Now, if your job is composed of only a few repetitive tasks, then yes, the job will go away, but the machine will do tasks. So you as a forward-thinking marketer should be thinking, how many tasks can I offload to a machine? And that's how you'll get to this higher productivity and higher returns faster than your competitors. Mm -hmm. I think this was a brilliant conversation and you shared some really interesting insights for our audience today. Are there any other key takeaways you'd like to share before we wrap up for the day? I want to go back to that last piece because I think it's important. Machines mm -hmm. take tasks. What are you doing at your company today to automate individual tasks, particularly ones that don't add a lot of value? What are you doing? How are you asking yourself, the people around you, how can we automate this? How can we get fewer humans working on this and more machines working on this? How can we increase the speed and the accuracy and the quality of what we produce using machines? 
consumers have a great expression that B2B marketers should be asking all the time. And the consumer expression is, you know, is there an app for that? You know, there's, it's mm-hmm. like there's an app for that or whatever it is. We in B2B marketing don't think about that enough. Is there an app or a piece of code or a system that we can use to automate a task so that it gets off of our plate and a machine does it at a lower cost and with better accuracy and faster? Now, that, that's a very relevant insight, talking about machines taking away only the tasks and not jobs, because this had created quite a stir a couple of years ago, and it still does with a lot of people talking about AI and robots and bots taking over a lot of jobs. So I'm glad that you cleared that out. So people have less things to worry about, and they know how to like maneuver this entire next couple of years once this picks up pace. Here's the thing, though. A tremendous number of jobs are still very, very repetitive. And so the more repetitive your job is and the more repetitive the, more the tasks are within are. the job, the, the, mm-hmm. the more in danger your job is. That's just going to be the way it is. Yeah. So basically, everyone out there has, to, has got to learn to think out of the box and be as creative as they can be so that no bot can take them over. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Great, Christopher. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation today. I hope you have an amazing day ahead and uh, we'll catch up sometime soon. Maybe the next time we'll have a debate about marketing and sales and who's better. Or maybe marketing, <laughs> sales and data scientists and who's better. You know, that, that would be a little more interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for having me. You can feel you free to, to so check much. us out at trustinsights.ai. Great. Thank you so much, Christopher. Christopher.